podcast and i'm really happy that we're now posting on youtube so folks can see our beautiful faces so we've got a lot to talk about today including the two-year mark of russia's second invasion of ukraine keep in mind this is the second one they first invaded in 2014 also the MAGA republicans are refusing to pass the senate version of the bill that would provide ukraine with some much needed aid then, of course, I don't know if y'all watched the Tucker Carlson interview with Russian President Vladimir Putin spreading some bullshit or a lot of bullshit and propaganda. We're, we're going to talk about that as well. And we are going to touch on Alexei Navalny's death and so much more. Here to talk through all of this with me is Kimberly St. Julian Varnon, the superstar Russia-Ukraine expert. And so she is pursuing her Ph.D. at the University of Pennsylvania, and her work focuses on Russia, the Soviet Union, and East Germany. Since 2012, she's become a regular commentator in American media on the uh, Russia war in Ukraine and Russian-American relations and issues of race and racism in Russia and Ukraine. And so my homegirl, my, 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 my ace and... I don't know, maybe the other black person that focuses on Ukraine with at the extent that as 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 I do. So what's up? How you doing? It's good to be back. It's good to see you. You've been all over the place. Oh my God. You know, I've been I'm right by the way, y'all see this hotel room for those who are who are watching. I'm I am at Yale, Yale University. Um, because I'm on a college tour talking about Ukraine and speaking with audiences about the need for America to support Ukraine, but also to uh, to talk about Ukraine within the context of Ukraine, right? And it's been a great experience, and I get a lot of people who follow the Zooms during my public talks, and some are bigger than, and than others. I was at the University of Oregon the other week, and so I was at Harvard last uh, last night, that was really great. It was an opportunity to talk with the foremost, you know, the foremost Ukraine scholars that focus on this stuff. And, you know, that's your alma mater. You got your master's degree from there, Kimberly. And now I'm at Yale and I'll be having a afternoon talk with Marcy Shore. So it, it's really um, been great. I'll be at the University of Chicago on Monday. So I got more than a dozen other talks just in the next two months for sure. But it's it's all been it's all been great. I it, it can be tiring sometimes, but I enjoy talking about Ukraine. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So before I get into, it, I just want to do a, a mental health check. I always do that with people, and and it's a whole lot going on in the world, and people really come to us for our brains and our knowledge. But I just like to check in with the person. So as as a human being, Kimberly, how are things? They're going. I mean, I'm dissertating, so I'm just in the archival trenches right now. <laughs> so it's just, you know, it's Groundhog's Day, kind of doing the same thing every day. But 
you know, I'm making it. It's getting warm, so I'll be happy as soon as it's hot again. No, I hear you. I hear you. So let's let's go get into it. So February 24th, we're we're at the second year of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And just want to really break down how devastating this has been to the Ukrainian people. Uh, Putin's genocidal actions against the Ukrainian people has internally displaced for more than 4 million people and forced more than 6.5 million Ukrainians to flee abroad. And this is according to a new report by the United Nations. Keep in mind that about 4.5 million people have since returned from displacement or abroad. Additionally, 10,582 civilians um, have, have been killed since February 2022, and numbers are, are believed to be significantly higher. The UN has also verified that around 19,875 civilians have been wounded. Another devastating figure, some 14 million people uh, were forced to flee their homes at some point during the past two years. So for a lot of y'all, y'all know that I was in Ukraine when the war started. And so I just want to bring a human touch to, to these numbers. I don't think people really understand what it means to be displaced from your home during a war. Right. Because displacement is something that happens everywhere. Right. You know, we, we, there's issues of homelessness in the United States, but it's not it's a, nothing like a war. It's nothing like having bombs falling down on you, not knowing that the family that you left behind will still be alive. You don't even know if they're in occupied territory. Sometimes you can't be in touch with them. And as somebody whose neighborhood has been hit by Russian missile strikes, just the incoming sound is terrifying. And a lot of the targets that were uh, the civilian targets, they were not remotely close to military installments. I speak to a lot of people across Europe who fled Ukraine, and people don't understand how difficult it is to be a refugee. In Poland, in particular, you have a lot of folks, right, who, who at the beginning of the war were very welcoming and saying, hey, we, we stand with Ukraine. But unfortunately, a lot of these economies and no, no, a lot places are not really built to take on the extra financial and, uh, burdens of people that they did not account for in their, in, in their budgets the year before. And so you have a lot of Ukrainians uh, who feel like they're facing resentment. And it's causing a lot of internal problems across these countries, a lot of xenophobia in many instances. And then also think about the language barriers. If you're a Ukrainian speaker or a Russian speaker, and you don't speak English and you're going to France, you're going to Germany, you're going to Poland. You just linguistically, you have to make an adjustment. And sometimes people can't do that. And then they go back home to uncertain circumstances and circumstances that are not really designed to that they're no longer they're not livable and it's just a terrible situation and you know on so many levels but Kimberly the two of us were were online also doing a lot particularly in the pre-Elon Musk era fighting disinformation uh, 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 trying to support African refugees who had their own unique experiences of fleeing as well so I just want to talk to you about what this two-year mark means for you as a person and also as a scholar that's devoted to Ukraine. 
been it's been a heavy I think a heavy couple of weeks is getting and thinking through it's been two years um but it's also a triumph considering Moscow thought they could take Kiev in three days but yeah so it's a triumph but it's also such an incredible shame that it's we're two years into this heavy onslaught and you know we're still at this point of massive massive damage but also massive displacement and so as a scholar it's been it's been difficult because I work on Russia and Ukraine as well as Eastern Germany and two of the three countries I, I can't travel to. And even if I could travel to Ukraine as a researcher, I also have the question of me being there is taking some type of resource from someone who lives in Ukraine, water, electricity, you know, attention. So I think about it that way. And if I can, I try to support local graduate students. I mean, they're Ukrainian graduate students whose careers and, you know, studies have been put on hold not just Ukrainian national students, but like we talked about the thousands of African students and foreign students who were in Ukraine, who were training to become doctors and so on and so forth, whose education have been cut short. And I've read reports like a lot of them want to come back. They want to finish their educations. And so it's kind of up in the air if you can even go back to school. And so we're thinking about the African students, especially at the, the onset of the war. I mean, we saw the horrific videos of the African students being taken off of trains. We saw reports of them being put to the back of the line uh, when they were trying to cross the border. And then we have the general issue of what happens when diplomatic relationships either aren't there or they fall apart. If you're an African student from Kenya or Nigeria or the Central African Republic or Cameroon, your home country may not have you know, diplomatic relationships with Poland or Hungary or Romania, the countries that were really shuttling in Ukrainians who are trying to flee the war. And so then you have the, the issue of, well, what do you do with these people? And so I feel like a lot of what we saw at the beginning of the war, we were seeing how not having that diplomatic relationship, but also just not having a facial features or skin colors that are red as European counted against you and it puts you in greater harm. I think we also saw, I used to describe the three-pronged problem. You have the issue of African students who were stuck in Eastern Ukraine, who were under bombardment every day, such as those who are in Sumy, who couldn't get out because of a failure of a corridor, who were also being exposed to Russian um, propaganda of hearing that they were safe and it was the Ukrainians who were keeping them when we know that wasn't true. Then it's the issue of how do you get across Ukraine from the East to the West to even get to the situation where you can cross the border. So we saw, I think, a lot of failures, not in terms of Ukrainian government, but I think it just shows the ways in which war, an unexpected war, can destroy so many everyday normal things that many people didn't have to think about. And it put that on, on display. And now, two years in, we still talk about displacement. We still talk about you know language issues. And also, people get homesick. I know Ukrainians who just, want, who just came home. They wanted to be in their home country. And like you talked about, the language barrier. If you have never learned German or English and all you've spoken is Ukrainian or Russian, suddenly being in a country where there are no signs that you can really read, you don't understand the conversations that are being had, it's also fear. So you have the unknown, you have fear, you don't know if your family's alive. So you have a lot of chaos going on. So I understand the Ukrainians who went back, um, especially those who live in the West, which has been under less bombardment than in the East, Kiev over. Um, but I was thinking about, I went to go see the, the the film Uprooted, which is about the children who have been stolen. They they say deported to Russia, but they were stolen by Russia. There were 19,000 Ukrainian children who've been stolen by Russia and who have been brought into Russian territory. They've been turned, they 
learn Russian. They're kind of being force-fed Russian civilizational politics and history, and they're being adopted out to Russian families. And that has been kind of the, the newest element of what I'm focused on because I, I it, that was not even on my radar when the war began, that Russia would be stealing children and, and you know adopting them out to Russian families and, tr- and taking them from their own families. So that's been a concern. And I've also been thinking about what happened to the, you know, the thousands of Romani Ukrainians who were trying to get out of Ukraine? How are they being treated in Hungary and right. Poland right now? How, how, Afro-Ukrainians, are they coming back? How are they being treated? Yeah, I want yeah, to, yeah. So I think those are things we still think about that the news isn't thinking about, but we're still thinking about. We're thinking about, exactly, because I'm actually working on a long-term documentary series on Black people who fleeing the war and I'm looking for money and I'm going to be talking about that in the upcoming weeks uh, to do so because their story is virtually untold. And I could just tell you about what it was like to to deal with that subject when I was in Ukraine. Well, I I live between Ukraine and, and the States now and I'm going back in April, but the, the racism, people were focusing on racism at the border the reality of it is that the race, racism was a lot more expansive than people than, than that border. So one type of story that I heard from African refugees, for example, was even the prices being hyperjacked up for them to flee. So for because I heard I heard voicemails from Africans who are saying that a, a car ride from I don't know, let's just say um, Kharkiv which is in the East going to the border, you're getting charged something like a thousand dollars, which is an outrageous amount of money that a Ukrainian person, no one would have. And, and then I spoke with African refugees in Europe who told me that they were held by gunpoint by, by, by uh, officers in Ukraine, because it was a conversation of, these Ukrainians need to get on these trains first. And there was just a pure, there was just a straight up dehumanization of who they are. And, and when they got on the trains and when they would be making stops in one town to the next, for all of the, the unity that we saw with people going to the side of the road, passing out food and drink, there were moments where the Africans black hand will go out of the window and people would just push it back or slap it and say that this is for Ukrainians only. And so you have these, and what was really painful to listen to was that these people really loved Ukraine and and really thought of it as a home that they could get settled into. But then when war happens, you tend to see the best of people and the worst of people. And Africans have seen the very worst of, of what happens in a country and it doesn't have to be Ukraine, it could be elsewhere, where people get down to their most basic extreme uh, instincts and, 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 and forget about their fellow human being. And the racism comes out, the xenophobia comes out. But it didn't just happen to Ukraine, it also happened in Germany, for example. I spoke with Africans who said that they were strip searched when they got across the border. I spoke with Africans in Poland who are talking about the disparities of them being uh, uh, Ukrainian passport holders being able to find work immediately as opposed to the Africans just having seven days or two weeks, depending on where they are across Europe. 
And I don't know if you know this, Kimberly, but all the Africans wanted to go to Portugal. And they wanted to go there because just culturally it was just a bit uh, safer for them. And then they treated every refugee equally, whether you are from the continent or you're from Ukraine. Now, going back to what you said earlier, just navigating, how do you get from the Ukrainian border all the way to Portugal? And that in itself is a maze because you start dealing with the paperwork and because at the end of the day, if you're a refugee, you're a refugee and you're supposed to be treated as such, but it never worked out that way. And I remember as I was doing my preliminary reporting, how awkward and almost guilty I felt as a black American who could just go through these borders without any problem whatsoever. And when the police would come on the trains at the border stops, I wasn't worried. I just put out my U.S. passport and I was going as as usual. But Africans, they don't have that same level of comfort. And the, as far as the the diplomatic relationships, a lot of people don't know across Europe. Every African country doesn't have a consulate or a, a, an embassy there. Now, Nigeria could be there. Nigerians have it better off than most, but even they get um, they run into a wide range of problems. And and so I'll end by saying that I was speaking to an African a uh, guy who a Nigerian guy who owned a, a a hair salon in Warsaw and he said that what was frustrating for him was that when the war started he was able to hire Ukrainians but when it came to his own people he couldn't hire them because the the laws would not allow the Nigerian to get the right paperwork to start to, to start employment so those are the type of things that you're running into um, and, and that you're running into. And then some of those problems are still lingering. And what's unfortunate is that there has not been a real reconciliation about that treatment since. And, and there needs to be. So I think it's a really good point. And we really need to think through, like we're talking about both institutional racism in terms of if you have a Nigerian passport and you have to flee to Poland because of the war, you can't get employment, but Ukrainians can. But then we're also talking about cultural racism, what Africans were experiencing throughout, trying to get out of Ukraine, trying to get aid in Ukraine. And then we, we even see this when we were trying to get African students out into various countries. We were trying to get them into Romania because they were facing racism in Hungary and Poland. Right. And so I think it shows the, the significant ways in which the legacies of colonial racism still play a part in this, but also the legacies of racism within the Eastern Bloc and had their treatment of African students. We're seeing this still when we're trying to get African refugees who are refugees, they're students whose lives have been thrown upside down because of the war. They're also victims of this war. You're trying to get them to a safe place. And the fact that Portugal was one of the safest places, one of the best places for them to go because Portugal had African colonies, Angola, Mozambique. It was actually one of the last countries to, uh, to give those African colonies independence. It says a lot about how far we have to go, but also the legacy of those ties and how important those ties still are. Um, so I hope, and I'm praying, because I would love to watch this documentary, but I think it's also an important documentary for people across the world to see, especially if you support Ukraine. You also need to understand this is part of the Ukrainian war story as well. And we need to recognize it. It is. It, it, yeah. And I completely support. We should provide as many educational opportunities as we can to Ukrainian scholars. And I'm proud that the United States has been really good at that. And Canada's been good at that. But I want to see more. 
not just for ethnic Ukrainians, but for the thousands of foreign students who saw Ukraine as a way to obtain education and to improve their lives. All of that's been thrown, you know, in the air for them. They need support too. And we should recognize that and give them that support as well. And, and you know what really annoyed, what's been annoying me anytime I have this conversation, Kimberly, is people feel like I'm shitting on Ukraine because I'm talking about racism and I'm creating opportunities for Russian propaganda to spread. For First of all, I was there and you witnessed this on your, you know, as yourself. No, there was some real straight up fucked up racism that was happening there. And nobody is saying that Ukraine is ground zero, the 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 magna cum laude of, of, of racism. Nobody is saying that. We're just saying that these things happened. Look, we the two of us spend a great deal of time talking about racism in the United States. And in our next segment, we're going to jump right into that. But damn, you know, these people experienced hell just like, you know, ethnic Ukrainians did. And all we're saying is that we want these people to have the same opportunities and experiences as anybody else. That's all we're saying. And you are not going to deal with this situation by denying that none of it happened or by saying that it was overblown or, 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 or by denying the agency of these people to articulate their experiences. Okay. And, and I've run into, and, it, and it's really been agitating and, I will say that I have a lot of people who thank me for that work, but you run into so many folks who feel like, well, now is not the time to talk about that. When, when, when is the time? It is okay? time. When is the time? <laughs> and I think that's the thing too. It's like racism. When we talk about racism in Ukraine, that does not in any way, shape or form legitimate Russia's behavior. That's the key. Racism in Ukraine is not an excuse for Russia to commit a genocide against Ukrainians. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is we can recognize that racism, it, racism existed in Ukraine long before the invasion, and it still exists. And that's part, I mean, Ukraine is not the only European country with this problem. All the European countries have this problem, right? But what we can also say is when we hide these issues, when we don't talk about these issues, it provides space for Russia to point out hypocrisy. And we know that's what Russia's good at. That's what Russia is always capitalized on. It takes a kernel of truth and it expands it and takes it out of purview or it makes it worse. So it's much worse to not admit to and discuss these issues in Ukraine than to act like they never happened. Like we have to recognize that. Recognizing it does not mean Ukraine is bad. It doesn't mean Ukraine is a Nazi country. It means Ukraine is a country with issues of ethnic nationalism and racism like every other country in Europe. You know what? That's all it is. And and if you want to add on more stuff to that, that's on y'all. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, we're keeping it simple. As long as we can focus on these particular issues, we can move on in the world to become better human beings to each other. Now, speaking of that, Let's talk about how the MAGA contingency of the Republican Party is 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 threatening Ukraine security with their white nationalism. So the Senate passed a a ninety five point three billion dollar foreign aid bill uh, with assistance for Ukraine and Israel recently. And so this is essentially setting up a showdown with. House Speaker Mike Johnson, who says he doesn't even plan on bringing the bill to the floor, right? 
So he's not even thinking about giving his other colleagues an opportunity to vote on the bill, which would likely pass. And so just breaking it down, 60 billion of that uh, of those dollars will go to support Ukraine in this fight against Russia and 14.1 billion will be in security assistance for Israel in this whole situation as Gaza just threw a monkey wrench in and even how we're talking about Ukraine because everything that the MAGA contingency is doing, they're connecting it to Ukraine, um, but also to the border. But I just wanted to add about $9.2 billion in humanitarian assistance and $4.8 billion is going to support regional partners in the Indo-Pacific region, right, and in, including other uh, policy provisions. But basically, Mike Johnson is holding Ukraine aid hostage, and his biggest conversations have been, we need to do more to to protect our borders. And let's just talk about what Texas is doing. And this is your home state now, Texas. And 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 what what they're doing, particularly with, with, with the gov- governor Abbott, he's busing undocumented peoples into these large cities that many of them are run by black mayors. You got you know, New York, where I'm from. You got Chicago. You got Los Angeles. And it's also going down into um, to, to Denver, Colorado, and so, to me, Kimberly, I feel like this is part of the MAGA campaign strategy of of really racializing um, the border situation in order to gin up support and turn out for Donald Trump, who I think we all think will be the eventual Dem- Republican nominee for 2024. And so, as much of a foreign policy year 2024 is the Republicans are not really focusing on foreign policy. They are essentially taking their xenophobic attitudes towards towards people who are definitely in need with with these migrants and turning it into a a rally for for, for racism and 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 othering folks in order to bring out their racist contingency with 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 the MAGA crowd. But I'm just curious as somebody who is from Texas and somebody that focuses on the issues of of race. What are your thoughts about this? Oh, this is a book and a half. So I am from Texas, if you can't hear it (laughs) in my voice. And so it's been really strange and really disappointing to see how, to see the GOP leverage more suffering to cause more suffering. The fact that they're tying funding Ukrainian war efforts to continued oppression and repression of people from Latin America and South America coming through the southern border. I think it's it's disturbing in a lot of ways. And it's it's actually concerned me a lot. Like for the past two years, we've seen politicians who have terrible repressive domestic policies going to Ukraine to launder their reputations. And I think what we're seeing now is the culmination of that. So, I mean, Texas has just I mean, it's been a new level of depravity in, in mistreating people from from Latin and Central and South America. They're busing people across the country, which is causing people to miss their appointments for asylum. They're denying um, people at the border the ability to claim asylum. They had these contraptions along the Rio Grande River that essentially they were like causing people to drown. We saw instances of children, and I think in, uh, two small children, their mother drowned, and they wouldn't allow the National Guard to even help these people who are drowning. So it's a new level of depravity and violence against people who are trying to come to the United States. And so you have that tied with giving aid to Ukraine, who's fighting, you know, a neo-imperialistic war. And what we've seen really is 
com- a complete reversion of what the, the GOP used to stand for. I mean, if you would have told people in 1985 that the, the party of Reagan would be, you know, essentially an asset of the Russian state, no one would believe you. Right. So I think we've seen, I mean, the ultimate and the very high cost of this embracing of isolationism, but it's only isolationism when it's towards Europe and it's isolationism when it comes to the southern border. We are closing the Canadian border. Right. We aren't doing that. It's very much racialized how we're deciding which immigrants we will and won't let in. And so what worries me is like, for example, uh, Mike Johnson, who's the speaker of the house, who's from my, my neighboring state, Louisiana, you know, he's said, no, automatically, he's not going to allow them to, to negotiate this bill at the same time when the news of Alexei Navalny's death red killing in a Russian prison came out, Mike Johnson was saying, we will have the strongest response. We can't allow Russia and Putin to get away with this. But you won't pass a bill. You won't allow debate on a bill that will provide Ukraine with the weapons to do so. So you're talking out of both sides of your face. You can't have a policy. You can't enact policies that won't support Ukraine, but also denigrate humans who are trying to pursue a better life in the United States. And then say you're going to disagree with Putin because fundamentally you don't. The GOP discussions about immigrants coming from South and Latin America is not that different from Putin's own discussions about people who are Muslims coming from Central Asia. And a lot of far-right Russian nationalist discussions about people coming from Islamic countries and Central Asia. So like, I mean, we've said this before, we've talked about this online, that there are different forms of internationalism. It's not only like a liberal leftist internationalism. You also have an internationalism of white supremacy and white cultural and ethnic supremacy. And that's also being embraced and it's being fostered, not just with the GOP in the United States and Russia and their treatment of immigrants, but also why are we having massive far-right political rallies, including Americans going to Hungary under Viktor Orban, right? So we see these connections, these connections are there and it's a new kind of level of these connections, but it's also in the face of embracing a type of violence and depravity towards people that's really concerning. So Mike Johnson doesn't care about Navalny. He doesn't care about Ukraine. I don't think he cares about anything other than maintaining his power. And they pimp out their political agency to a man that would discard them at the flip of a coin. And it really just amazes me how these people tap dance for him when i don't i don't remember if you saw tim scott like the way this there was a recent uh there was a recent rally in in south carolina where where tim scott was introducing donald trump and it just evoked all of the stereotypes of of black people who Acquiesce, and I'm being nice here. You know their 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 dignity to 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 Trump and a man who is do, is a documented racist, and I cannot reconcile in my mind why that man would do that. But it's not just Tim Scott; it's it's all of these people, regardless of their race. But what I drive home to people and what I said last, what I said during my talk at Harvard was. We can no longer look at anti-blackness and xenophobia towards P- 
people coming south of the border as something that's specific to them. The 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 very xenophobic messaging and and policies of the mega contingency and of the Republican Party are harming Ukraine. The anti-blackness that is directed towards people like, you know, like the two of us, that racism has been used as a rallying call to to say, if this is not America first, then it ain't happening. And so there was never a situation where I thought the anti-racism that impacts the two of us and our families and our in our black communities and those of people coming from Central and South America would provide a a just a direct parallel to what's going on in Ukraine. It can't be any clearer. Anti-blackness and racism and white supremacy is harming foreign policy. So it goes into my major theme of we all have to be invested in each other's security because the racism that impacts us is going to inevitably impact you. And that's what's happening in Ukraine right now Mm -hmm. with Ukraine. Absolutely. And I think this is also why we've talked about this too. You can't just have a domestic policy focus and how you understand American politics and how you vote and things like that. It always comes home, right? What happens in the United States, clearly it leaks out. (laughs) It has impact. And when we think about tap dancing for, you know, someone who aspires to be an authoritarian leader, but we also tend to say, well, we don't understand how Russia looks the way it does. It's not hard to, when you see that there are people who will subjugate their own personal benefit to support a political regime, even if that regime doesn't actually help them. And we see that in the United States. When you have people who are in the lower and middle classes and working classes who support politicians, who constantly support tax breaks for the top 1%, who refuse to allow unions to be formed, people are voting outside and against their own interests. We see that in the United States. Why are we surprised that it happens in other countries, including in Russia? So I think that what we're able to see, and although people will argue, well, you can't, I love this critique that you can't apply like Western understandings of racism to other countries. It's like, number one, no one's saying that the black-white binary of the United States is the only way to understand racism in Russia or in Ukraine. No one's saying that. But what we are saying is you can see how particular types of people, particularly people who look visually look different than the majority, how those people can become targets for repression and how those targets of repression become the basis of further repressive systems. That's what we're saying. It might not be Africans in Russia, but it certainly can be Uzbeks. It can be Kazakhs. It can be Tajiks who are at the bottom of the rung, who are subjugated to repressive immigration strictures, who are being used and abused in illegal labor. Sounds a lot like what we talk about in Texas and in California and in Arizona at the border states. These are more global issues. And help like we can use our lived experience and our academic experience to better understand these situations and to help people in those situations inside and outside the United States. Have you have you made it to Central Asia yet? Not yet. It's on my list. Like I want to I really want to go to Uzbekistan. I need I should go for research, but I want to go to Central Asia to experience Central Asia, but also it's I know it's going to be a different vibe from like Ukraine and from Russia. I want to go to Central Asia for that, oh, but God. also yeah. if you haven't, yeah. if you don't know, Central Asian cuisine is truly amazing. So I also want to go to enjoy that as well. Uh, yeah, but the reason why I brought that up, the reason why I brought that up is because 
when I go every year and I stay a month. So I go to Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, like the all, all of them. And I don't it's, I don't like when people refer to them as stands because when you go to each of these countries, they're vastly different. I mean, literally, you walk through the streets. It, it's a different cultural feel to each of those Central Asian countries. But what stood out to me was I went to a museum of hours or so outside of Tashkent, and it really showed how Uzbeks suffered under the Russian Empire and then during the Soviet Union and how they were racialized. It was It's a great museum, and then I'm definitely going to recommend it to you when you go. And anybody who wants to understand how the Russians understood uh, racialized Uzbeks, this museum, and I'll think of the name of it because it evades my mind right now, but it's it's a it, it really put everything into perspective and it just breaks these myths that the Soviet Union was this big happy racial um, um, paradise and it was nothing it, 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 it was uh, everything but that but the last time I went the this was after the, the invasion the there was a lot of Russian being spoken on the streets of Tashkent in particular and you didn't hear a lot of Russian spoken prior to the invasion because Russian is spoken in Uzbekistan and people are fine with it. I use it when I'm there, but people, you didn't hear it at the volume that you heard it once all these people were fleeing mobilization. And you, what you're starting to see, and at least I know you watched this, I know you're an observer of the news going on in Central Asia, the the Uzbeks and other Central Asian countries are in their own way pushing back against this Russian imperial influence that Putin is trying to spread. And so they are kind of giving him the Heisman, the Putin the Heisman more and more and more. And so you have elected officials, the president speaking in their local languages, whether it's Kazakh or Uzbek or you know Tajik right now. And, and, and these things to the to the non-observer like us it's like man but for us who know that region it's very significant right and and and, and so i also you, you talk to people who say they get jobs as taxi drivers in moscow and the discrimination that they face and the fines that they have to pay because they, they have to pay the tajik tax or the uzbek tax that's a really common conversation that you'll hear from folks that live in Central Asia, right? So everything that you're saying about the racial dynamics is all true because they have in their region, I call it the Russian supremacist framework that Putin is operating from. And he definitely operates like that. And if you really want to understand it, all you have to do is subscribe to Dmitry Medvedev's Telegram. Ooh. <laughs> That's all you got to do. It's, it's a cesspool. It, <laughs> Right, right. So I mean, so so what we're so we, with me and Kimberly when we're talking about this stuff, you know, it's you know uh, the reason why our work is so important, Kimberly, is that at the end of the day, we're really trying to use all of our knowledge, me as a journalist and you as a researcher, as a historian, to really shape conversations that make people think about how we treat one another, and it and and we engage the political discourse about ways in which we could do it with our regional expertise because what's unfortunate is that they're, they're, the the field is run by Russianists 
unfortunately, purely in those who don't take the time to understand countries outside of Russia, right? Which why I think with this war and why people underestimate Ukrainians' will willingness to fight is that it, it, it really takes more than understanding how many artillery pieces and tanks and, and fighter jets that a nation has so much about will their their determination and what and, and what's to win you it's hard to quantify that which is why i think people miscalculated the ukrainians culturally because i live there and i can tell you right now there is no there is no appetite whatsoever for cons concessions capitulations at all and i always say this and i'll stand 10 toes down on it if and overall, when you're talking about how, you know, this this issue of treatment, um, even though it's not exactly the same thing, but there are ethnic slurs that that Russia that 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 there are that are targeted towards Ukrainians. A lot of people don't know that, right? Um, you know, but but basically, if you're a Ukrainian out here, is every day someone telling you about what you your country doesn't exist? You as a people are a made up people. How do you think that that would make any person feel what you know as black people latinx folks we all can relate to that and i tell people that if Zelensky were to say we're going to go into quote-unquote peace negotiations because i say in quotes because there is no peace with russia because russia doesn't want that the ukrainian people would start another revolution replace Zelensky, and put and and, and and put someone else in that will continue to fight oh yeah it'd be maidan part two I think that's and that's the thing too is the appetite yeah, yeah. to fight, but also Ukrainians understand thanks to what happened post twenty fourteen, no negotiated peace will be maintained because it didn't, <laughs> right? The 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 Minsk agreements failed and Russia violated them, and so we also have to understand is when we when we think about why it's important to have these cultural and historical understandings of of the region, it is because too often when we think about, well, this is how many tanks they have, this is how much, you know, grain they have. You're when you rely on data, you underestimate the human heart and the human soul to fight. But also, like you said, like our field, my field of Soviet history, the field of, of, of history in general that work on the region, it is very much dominated by Russianists. We are trained as Russianists. Our language of research typically is Russian. You work on Russia and you go to the archives in Ukraine or Georgia or Kazakhstan or, or Uzbekistan because you have to, like right now, because the war people can't go to Russia, so they're going to the, the former Soviet republics. But it's not necessarily to get an understanding of those countries' histories. It's just to get access to Russian material. Right. So even then, like the way that we use these countries is not to understand the, the country's history themselves. And so what we've seen in the field lately is this conversation of decolonization, but also people who have been and who've often been kind of ghettoized where, okay, you work on Ukrainian history. So you work on Ukraine. You're not really a Soviet historian. You're a Ukrainian historian. Oh, you work on Central Asia. One, it's hard to work on Central Asia in the United States. There are not that many places that have people who work on Central Asia. I can think of two off the top of my head, but also language acquisition. There are many more Russian language programs in the United States than there are Ukrainian or Polish, especially compared to Kazakh or Uzbek, which are difficult languages to learn. Um, and besides like summer programs, you don't really have those opportunities. So we're also thinking about and talking about structural issues within the academy. 
of how we get knowledge, how we produce knowledge. So hopefully the conversations we're having now and the conversations that Ukrainians are really running with in the academy, but will lead to change. But I also think it's important to recognize that Central Asian academics were having these conversations 20 years ago and no one wanted to listen to them. And so it's sad that it took a war for us to start having these conversations, but I'm glad they're finally being had. Yeah, yeah. And and, and let's talk about Alexei Navalny, who died, read, was killed in 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 Russian uh, in a Russian prison. And so, as we all know, that Navalny was somebody who fought for mm-hmm. uh, democratic freedoms in Russia. He was somebody who many in Russia felt was an inspiration to fighting kleptocracy and most importantly being an anti-Putin crusader who did a lot. And for a lot of folks, I first, one of the things I watched uh, with Navalny were his, his, was his blogging and he was really good with getting on social media and, and YouTube and doing corruption investigations. He was very good at that. I think that he had, had he devoted his life to being a journalist uh, had he been working at the New York Times or Washington Post during this type of work, he he would have won a couple of Pulitzer Prizes. I think he was very good at that and really breaking it down in simple language for people. But you know, he, he also had a complicated history, or or, or a he had a, a variety of, of of obituaries, right? And we all know about his very national his embrace of nationalism and racism that a lot of his supporters don't really want to talk about, but they should. And I remember writing about this in the Washington Post some years ago and getting pushback from people who said I didn't know what I was talking about and questioning my qualifications. And so just the mere thought of 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 me mentioning things that his racism, cockroaches, and I don't know if any, you know, if you have an inkling of the Russian language, when you say some of these things and these words in the Russian language, it's harsh. I don't think people realize like you cur- cursing casually in English is not the same as profanity yeah. in Russian. Yeah, it's different. It, it, it isn't. It, it just it, it just it, it's very different, right? And we're not even going to talk about Ruski Mat. Like we're not even going to have that whole conversation, right? But my point is that Navalny, for all of the great things that he did for the Russian people, and I definitely think that he was a freedom fighter in his own right, and I think that he was a prisoner of consciousness when that when Transparency International, I don't know, I believe it was uh, it was Amnesty, Amnesty International, International. Uh, who uh, once made, yeah, yeah, who once made him a prisoner of consciousness, and then took him off. I thought that was a mistake, and I and I criticized that move. We also have to talk about the full picture of who he is, and, I, and, and when you and when he died. Ukrainians and Central Asians and people from the Caucasus have very different views from, quite frankly, the white men in the West who were celebrating the his his his, his you know the Oscar for 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 his movie right. Mm-hmm. And I just want to talk about the why right. I, and my thing is, how do we talk about Navalny now? And and for me, I think there are a couple of things. One. When people say that we're going to respond with, you know, in in retaliation for uh, Navalny's death, we're going to respond forcefully. One of the things that we can do is reflect on a book by Michael Michelle, where he talked about the kleptocracy and how much our laws allow 
Russian oligarchs to wash their money in the United States and to invest in Rust Belt states and 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 factories. You know, and Ilhor Kolomoisky was one of them. He's a Ukrainian oligarch, um, ties to Russia, and he's you know Russian oligarchs are the same situation where they wash their money in London and various part in various countries in Europe and here mm-hmm. in the United States, and we we actually help to aid and abet the financial foundations of these folks. So if we really want to care about supporting Navalny and death, then we can close all these loopholes and make it easy for people to, to, to launder their cash. And if we also, um, you know, Yulia uh, Navalnaya, um, you know, she said that the work would go on. What I hope that part of her work, and, and by the way, for all the critiques that I have about Navalny, None of us wanted this to happen to him. Let's just Precisely. be clear. None of we wanted Navalny to be a better uh, person when you know when it came to people outside of Russia, the, the the Central Asians, the Caucasus people, the Ukrainians. We wanted him to be better, and I hope that what Yulia Navalnaya will be able to do, and God bless her for you know because she doesn't deserve to be a widow. Again, I'm going to re- continue to repeat that, but I do hope that she does you know operates with more empathy and understanding of these communities that we brought up because that movement could be stronger if they feel like they're a part of it because the ways that these folks responded to Boris Nemtsov's death mm-hmm. some years ago is vastly different from how they view Navalny. Yes. You know, yes. and so I just want him to be a better individual. I want I want his legacy to be one that unites people as opposed to creating these tensions where, yeah, we sorry he did, but we don't fuck with him like that for real, for real. You get what I'm saying? I just want to get your thoughts on that. I think it's important. I'm writing a piece now that kind of shows and discusses the through line uh, and the evolution of Navalny's nationalism and how you can go from making videos calling people, calling Chechens cockroaches and shooting them and then talking about you know his turn towards anti-corruption, but also understanding that the politics of anti-corruption were also a politics of anti-immigration that was targeting Muslims from Central Asia. And so like there is a through line in that. So I think when people say, well, he made those videos and he, you know, led the helped lead these alt-right, far-right Russian nationalist marches, but that was 17 years ago. Well, those particular public portrayals were were 17 years ago, but the politics themselves are not 17 years ago. Additionally, when we think about, like, it's been really weird to see people tone policing Ukrainians and how they should respond to Navalny's death and tone policing Central Asians. Um, like, can we, can we relate to that? Uh, right? Like, oh, you, you can't say bad things. And, and I have not seen <laughs> Ukrainians or Central Asians or people in the caucus. I haven't seen them say Navalny deserved to die. I have not seen them say things that in any way justify his death. What I've seen them saying is it's horrific that he was killed. This is a political killing. It shows how terrible Putin is. But also we would like someone who, while we're praising Navalny, to also recognize that his words and his politics had harm. It led to harm of people who were already being targeted in Russia. Central Asians were being killed. They were being thrown off of roofs by police in Moscow. They were regularly and still are targeted by different, you know, by institutional repression and racism, but also cultural racism. And to recognize that and to recognize that Navalny's national politics had harm 
even if he did change his mind after the second invasion of Ukraine and he walked back his comments in Ukraine, there was still an eight-year gap. And within that eight-year gap, thousands of Ukrainians died in the East, right? And I think to recognize that isn't to say Navalny shouldn't be understood as a leader of the opposition who was working against Putin, but it's also to say there were shortcomings in his politics that have significant costs. And that if we're going to think about an opposition that can truly take on an authoritarian government like Putin's, that has actually co-opted a lot of Navalny's early national points, then we have to recognize that you have to include those groups who are at the bottom of the ladder in Russia. Those are your Central Asian and Caucasian migrants and immigrants. It is your Muslim citizens of Russia. It is the LGBTQ community in Russia. It is the feminist community in Russia. Crimean Tatars who are in Russian-occupied Crimea are being put in prison. Um, a few months ago, a Crimean Tatar activist died in prison, right? So we have to understand that Navalny is a great symbol of opposition, but his death also should let us know if they will kill Navalny, what are they doing to the Crimean Tatar, the Uzbek Muslims, and the other groups that are oppressed in Russia? How are they treating those opposition leaders that we've never heard of? And I think that therein lies the problem. Yeah, and let's be real, Kimberly. Navalny never really apologized for the shit that he said. What happened was that there was a lapse where he had this PR shift where he just became a different person. He didn't have a reconciliation of his words. He just didn't. And I remember when I published my article some years ago about we need to have a conversation about Navalny. People pointed me to these interviews and time stamping them and said, well, he apologized. I'm saying, show me exactly where. And the man didn't apologize. It would be somebody would ask him the question in a very loose way. It was almost one of those questions where you say, okay, let me at least bring this up. But I'm Mm -hmm. not really going to get into the detail about it. But the man never really reconciled because if he did, then all these peoples that we're talking about would be reacting differently to him. And so either this man had a complete shift in thinking about all these subjects we discussed and we completely missed it, or the man did not fully hold himself accountable for the harmful things that he said. And the reality is that he didn't. And so, you know, I close out this show because this is really in, in honor of the second mark of this war. I really want us to use these moments in this conversation to think about how can we be better human beings? That has been the thread of our whole conversation. And I think that when we don't do this, if we, if the harm that we see happening to other people is not impacting us now, it will directly or indirectly hurt us later. Yep, precisely. Because that's what hate, that's what discrimination does. And and, and so I just want to thank you, Kimberly, for doing what you do. And you are somebody whose work that I lean on. If I need some historical context, I interview you. And to give that to me because that's not my skill set. I, you know, you send me out in the field, I'll go anywhere and I'll get the work done. 
we need more people like you in academia and people who are supported because it's not a lot of black women out there who's doing the work that you do in this environment is pretty hostile to black folk, but you are one of those people that's finishing up this PhD and you are going to be one of our generation's greatest scholars. You already are. I was talking to Professor uh, Plohe and he was saying, yeah, you know, Kimberly's profile is bigger than a lot of uh, professors out there in that we were just really giving you our props. We were heading to dinner after my talk. And so you, 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 it, you, you are everything. And so I just want everybody who's listening and watching to recognize that. So I just want to give you your props. Thank you. And I think that's the important thing. I mean, it's, I grew up on a farm, the way I was raised, when you see someone in trouble or who needs help, you offer help, right? It's just your, it's the golden rule. Treat people the way you want to be treated. And I think that's where, that's where our work comes from. Like my initial profile on Ukraine was because I was seeing people talking about Ukrainian history that weren't, had no idea what they're talking about. So I started tweeting about Ukrainian history, the history I learned from Professor Plokey, right? And we started talking about our experiences as Black people in Ukraine. And we started reaching out and helping, you know, and doing what we could. And I think that's the important thing. And I think for me as an academic, I can't just sit with writing articles and writing books that only impact a few people in the field. There's, I've invested too much time in this, but also I feel like there's too much public money invested in my brain to not use this information and use my skills and my expertise to, to better the public and to help the public better understand this region that we work on, especially people who grew up in a poor farm town like mine, you know, to actually know and learn more about the world. So that's the least I can do. So that's what I'm going to do. Absolutely. So Thank you all for watching and listening to this episode of Black Diplomats. We're going to be returning with more regular uh, publishing of episodes. And so look down in the show notes where you can financially support Black Diplomats and some good news. Uh, now we are pursuing uh, Black Diplomats Media Group as a, first of all, just that's the new name, Black Diplomats Media Group. So we're a podcast, we are a YouTube channel and a newsletter. And so Black Diplomats is in the final stages of being trademarked. And we are also applying for a nonprofit tax status so that we will be a nonprofit newsroom. And the goal is to raise money to hire full-time staff to do reporting not only from Ukraine, but also on the continent and uh, other areas of the world that 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 I don't have the bandwidth to 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 visit. So that's on the that's on the agenda moving forward. But thank you all very much for tuning in and I'll talk to y'all again soon. Before Uncle Sam was catching fades, I was drumming all on stage, college shit, financial aid. Dreaming about women with million dollar smiles, getting laid to get older and realize they minds is minimum wage. Letter to America, fuck your white collar, you cowards, your shitty need for power and your stupid paper dollar. Well, maybe not the dollar, need that to pay bills. Go back to work to repeat the same drill. <laughs>